time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge. All right, my name's Cameron Riley. Uh, g'day. As you can probably gather from the accent, um, I'm not Belgium. from around these here parts. Uh, my uh, balding uh, colleague here is uh, Ray Harris. Uh, he is an American. Yeah, sorry. I'm in Brisbane. I'm in Brisbane, Australia, uh, where it is uh, very early in the morning, uh, about a week from now. Um, that's how time zones work. Uh, how many, uh, first question I've got is how many of you guys are Americans? Can you raise your hand for me? Okay. Not many. That's good. Um, and the reason I say that is I, I think the hardest thing for Americans studying the cold war, uh, and I don't know how, uh, you found this Ray, when we started the show six years ago in April, it'll be six years. Um, is is for is to rid themselves of this idea that the Americans are the good guys in the Cold War. Um, you know, there's been 80 years of U.S. propaganda, books, films, TV, magazines, uh, YouTube's documentaries that say the Soviets were b- the bad guys, the U.S. were the good guys, and it's very hard to get. Uh, out of that loop, uh, um, you know, one of the things I've found in the last six years we've been doing the show is it's uh, very hard to get books uh, in English that don't have a pro-US or at least a pro-Western bias when discussing the topics of the Cold War. <clears throat> it takes a, a great deal of work to find balanced sources. And look, I don't know how you guys feel. But generally, my take on history is that, uh, generally speaking, there are no good guys and there are no bad guys. There are just um, opposing sides, conflicting interests. And, um, you know, if it's, uh, you know, my basic approach when I'm talking about anyone in history, going back to Alexander the Great through to the Cold War, is really to just assume at the outset that um, all sides are rational actors with legitimate motives and legitimate interests. Uh, uh, you know, even Hitler had legitimate interests. That's my Hitler. That's my Hitler line for the day. Uh, out of the way. You know, it's it, it it really pays as a historian to try and understand what the motives, what the interests of these people were. You may or may not agree with their interests, but um, the best way I've found of, of trying to get a grasp of history is to treat all sides as equally as possible and, and look at their interests uh, neutrally and uh, try and work out why they did what they did and uh, help piece together your own narrative as a result of that rather than relying on the narrative that tends to come out of Books and and you know one of the reasons why I think why most of the material that's been produced in the West in the last eighty years as a pro-Western narrative is because it was probably inordinately difficult for an author who wanted to talk about a, a counter narrative or a different narrative to get published in the West in the last mm-hmm. eighty years. There are some exceptions, and it's probably a little bit easier today 
to uh, write something that's a little bit revisionist, but um, for the vast majority of the last 80 years, it was very, very difficult for anyone in the West to get a book that talked about uh, well, the Soviets had some legitimate interests or the Cubans or the Viet Cong or whoever it was, the, the Chinese, the North Koreans. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the challenge for us is, as, as historians studying the subject is to try and get out of that default pro-Western narrative. And if we were, if we, you know, were living in Moscow or Havana, you know, probably all of our material would have a pro, uh, you know, Russian or, or Cuban narrative as well. It's not just a, a Western thing. But I think it's the first thing to understand. Uh, Ray, when we started doing the show, did it force mm -hmm. you as an American to uh, challenge your lifelong beliefs on America's role in the Cold War? Oh, absolutely. Um, I grew up indoctrinated that America is the greatest country in the world. We're the guys with the white hats. Everybody wants to be like us. We are the heroes. We basically won World War II by ourselves. The Cold War were the good guys. Uh, uh, the Soviets are the bad guys. And to prove that you could go up to a... Um, a person in America today who's very poor, who doesn't have health care, they live paycheck to paycheck, and you could recommend some kind of maybe left-leaning program to try to help them. And obviously, they're struggling and their, their quality of life is abysmal. And they would say, no, thank you, because that's communism and that's socialism. And that is not only wrong, but it's evil. And that kind of thought still is quite strong today. So, yes, I had to do a little bit of a mental gymnastics when we started going through this material. Mm. And I had to, I had to physically beat him for the first couple of yes. years to get him yes. out of that, which he uh, he pretended not to enjoy. But let's be honest, um, it was a good moment. So, with that introduction out of the way, look for for me, um, the Cold War is mostly a post World War II battle over economic blocks after the collapse of the traditional. European uh, powers uh, uh, during World War II, their grasp on the various economic blocks that they had around the world crumbled. And then it became a, a, a battle for dominance, really, between the US uh, leading the Western side of it and the Soviets leading the Eastern side of it. And... A lot of it was driven from the from the Western perspective, from the U.S. perspective. A lot of it was driven because the U.S. capitalists uh, needed export markets. Uh, when you read the economic history of the United States from, say, the middle of the 19th century up until the middle of the 20th century, it was a succession of economic crises. Every decade, there were one or two economic. Uh, crises, obviously the Great Depression being the big one, but there was a series of uh, recessions, serious recessions all mm. the way along. And the, the conclusion on behalf of American strategic planners was they needed more uh, international markets to ship their goods to. They were producing way uh, too many products to uh, sell domestically. They needed access to international markets, and pre-World War II, that was difficult because the European powers controlled those markets and they had taxes and levies and duties on anyone from outside that block that wanted to get in there. And if you go back and you read about 
uh, America's positions on China in the late 19th century uh, and their attempts to push this uh, through diplomatic circles, this open-door policy to China. It's kind of where it all begins. They wanted access to the Chinese markets. And that accelerated after World War II when the US was the dominant economic power on the planet. And they needed to control these foreign markets, as many of them as possible, so they had the biggest opportunity available. And in order to do that, they needed to keep these countries out of the Soviet economic bloc. Obviously, um, the Soviet Union uh, coming out of World War II was not in a good was not in a good place. They had been they'd lost you know, twenty million people roughly during World War II. <clears throat> hadn't really you know uh, come out of their own revolution. I mean, if you look at the history of Russia in that period, obviously they were a little bit late to the game when it comes to the industrial revolution. Um, they, you know, had their monarchy that was obviously corrupt in the early part of the 20th century. They had the revolution. Then they had a civil war on the back of that where they got invaded by Western powers during that. The the US Mm -hmm. and the UK sent troops over to invade Russia to try and support the uh, white army, the, the monarchists, against the uh, Bolsheviks, uh, which obviously made uh, them forming an alliance uh, 20 years later tricky uh, from a Russian perspective. Um, and But, you know, the, the, the Russians and the rest of the Soviet countries hadn't really recovered economically from all of that turmoil before Hitler invaded and they were thrust into World War II where they lost 20 million people. As I said, their country was devastated by the Nazi invasion. Uh, You know, entire villages destroyed, infrastructure destroyed, people killed. And so coming out of World War II, you know, Stalin's imperative was to try and rebuild Russia economically. Um, and, And to do that, he needed access to markets. He needed needed access mm-hmm. to resources that they didn't have internally. They needed access to money. They needed access to markets to sell their goods and services to. And so they were trying to expand their economic block. Meanwhile, the Americans are trying to uh, expand their economic block. And that's one big part of the Cold War conflict is dominance over economic mm-hmm. blocks. The other thing that was worrisome to the American capitalists, the business leaders, the government leaders in the United States was the rise of, the potential rise of socialism domestically inside of the continental United States. Mm -hmm. Um, After the Great Depression, people around the world uh, had genuine concerns about the um, sustainability and legitimacy of capitalism as a socioeconomic framework, uh, particularly, as I said, you know, it was just the, the Great Depression was the last in a series of regular uh, economic recessions that capitalist countries had faced. And and people were, you know, getting serious about, okay, maybe we should uh, modify or throw out capitalism and replace it with socialism. There was this rising interest and demand in socialism 
In the United States, uh, FDR uh, introduced the New Deal in the 30s, which was incredibly unpopular with uh, Mm. business leaders in the US, many, many business leaders. Um, They saw this as a direct attack on laissez-faire capitalism. And so there was... um, there was these simultaneous, uh, I think, key issues driving the Cold War narrative in the West. One, access to international markets. Two, uh, preventing the increasing rise of socialism domestically in capitalist countries because if, you know, socialism uh, was, was successful in a Western yeah. country, it would be a direct threat to the wealth of the elite, the capitalists. And there's no, they didn't want that to happen. Obviously, they wanted to protect their, um, their wealth, uh, their economic dominance, their control of the, uh, the political system, of the media. And uh, one of the ways they did this in the United States that we've talked about in great detail on our show was to uh, align themselves with a certain set of evangelical preachers and got these preachers uh, both in the, at the pulpit and um, in the media to push a narrative that socialism was uh, anti-Christian and anti-American and evil. And America was a very religious country in the 30s, 40s, 50s, still today uh, compared to most developed countries, uh, highly religious. And so this narrative worked. Now, it's interesting when you read through the histories of that, that um, a lot of the Christian leaders in the United States were pro-socialist in the early part of the 20th century. Even FDR himself was part of a congregation that was, uh, you know, very, very left-leaning, a Christian um, denomination, very left-leaning, and, and that's part of his thinking around the New Deal there was a lot of Christian leaders that in the United States and around the world that were talking about, well, we need to share the wealth. We need. If you go back and, you know, you can see this poster behind me. I, I did a documentary last year, the year before it came out. We talk about early Christianity. And, and, and you know, when you go back and you read the histories of early Christian, Christian communities, they were quasi-proto-communists. Uh, everyone sharing the wealth and all that kind of stuff. So Christianity did have this... Um, if you go back far enough, this uh, socialist background. But, you know, they, the, these uh, US capitalist leaders, by throwing enough money around, were able to find evangelical leaders that were willing to jump on board. And the ones that jumped on board and pushed the socialism is evil narrative got tons of cash. And with the tons of cash, they could build flashy churches. And with flashy churches, they could bring more people in, more bums on the seats. And they, you know, they could publish more books. They, they got easy access to columns and radio shows because the media barons were, wanted them to push this narrative. You make it so sound like it's about the money. Uh, it was all about the money, Ray. Yeah, okay. yeah. Pro- Just protecting the money, yeah. Okay. So they used these massive donations uh the, the business leaders did to uh, find pliable Christian churches to tie capitalism to America and Christianity. And then they used things like McCarthyism, mm. the FBI, appliant uh, capitalist media, the war on drugs, you know, particularly when we get into the, the 60s and the 70s, 
um, and we see, you know, successive US administrations at home use tactics like the war on drugs to um, infiltrate and uh, destroy any, you know, uh, pro-socialist or anti-war activist movements around the country and destroy any um, domestic opposition to laissez-faire capitalism, basically. Meanwhile, the Soviets and the other nascent communist countries genuinely believed that the US was intent on destroying them through a combination of economic warfare and or nuclear weapons Mm. and tried to defend themselves by building up a massive military to prevent the inevitable uh, attack that they believed was coming from the West and they had good reasons to believe that. I mean, partly that was the Marxist, uh, Leninist, Stalinist um, mindset was that capitalism would not allow socialism to succeed. It was antithetical to their worldview and that they would try and destroy it through means fair, fair and foul. And they were... And they were right in believing that. Uh, That was definitely the um, strategic intent on behalf of the West. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, in order to prepare themselves or try and defend themselves, these uh, socialist proto-communist countries ended up devoting large amounts of their struggling economies. Because if you look at all of them, whether it's you know, the, the Soviet countries or, or uh, China, North Korea, Vietnam, uh, Cuba, etc. they had all come from extremely poor backgrounds. And if you've read your Marxist uh, literature, you'll know that uh, in the view of Marx and Engels, uh, com- socialism and communism are supposed to come after capitalism in terms of the um, socioeconomic development of a country. Um, You needed to use, in their view, you went from feudalism through capitalism. You used capitalism to build up the um, infrastructure, the um, economic resources of a country, and then socialism was a more advanced level of socioeconomic uh, cooperation amongst the people, uh, where the people had control of the means of production, and then eventually you went to communism, where there was no need for a state, no need for any level of uh, control mechanism in society, and everyone had been educated in the values of socialism and communism and were happy to share the, share the wealth around, et cetera, et cetera. But um, unfortunately, uh, all the countries I mentioned before tried to jump pretty much straight from mm. feudalism or, or you know, just emerging out of colonial control straight to a, a, an advanced form of socialism, skipping over the whole, oh, well, yeah, we won't worry about that capitalist part, we'll just skip right over, mm. which means you know, they, they were um, r- way behind the eight ball in terms of their uh, – productive capability as countries, uh, they had a lot of work to do. And they tried to, you know, uh, uh, fast-track that through a a series of uh, five-year plans and 10-year plans. 
No, they, you know, this is happening without computers. This is happening, uh, you know, they're doing everything uh, on a pad with a pencil trying to work out how to manage the economy of quite large countries. If you take Russia, uh, 250, 300 million people in the early part of the 20th century, China had a massive population. Um, and they made a lot of mistakes and it didn't go well uh, and for a variety of reasons, some to do with corruption of officials, some to do with just, you know, their the inexperience or, or their inability to, to centrally manage such large geographies and economies. Um, famine uh, kicked in, you know, if you, you slightly get the, um, the, the agriculture production schedules mm. off, it can lead to massive famines and then you've lost millions of people and, and, and that creates a whole new set of economic problems. And at the same time, they're throwing a massive amount of their economy at a military build-up to defend themselves from the inevitable Western invasions and attacks which means instead of spending that money that they should have been spending on infrastructure and agriculture and housing and education and all those sorts of things, it's going to nuclear weapons and big armies and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, economically, these countries continued to struggle for decades because they did get pulled into various conflicts around the world as well, the, the proxy wars that happened right throughout the Cold War. The Korean War, Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the US, on the other hand, while all this is happening, um, thought it made strategic sense. The US, and by the US, I mean the US and their, their allied countries in the West, including my country, Australia, United Kingdom, Canada, et cetera, uh, France and Germany to lesser extents, um, thought it was a good idea to directly and indirectly support a series of uh, far-right uh, tyrants, um, dictators, mm. coups around the world. Yeah. And the, the theory was that um, it was going to be easier for the United States to trade with countries on the far right. If you've got a choice between supporting a far-left dictator in a Latin American country or a far-right dictator, it makes more sense for the US to support a dictator who's on the far right because um, they're more likely to want to trade with them. If you support somebody on the far left, they're probably going to end up in the Soviet bloc and not want to trade with you. So what's the point of supporting them in the first place? So they ended up supporting uh, a series throughout middle, uh, the Middle East, throughout Asia, throughout Latin America uh, and throughout Europe supporting a succession of far-right dictatorships, which, of course, uh, increased the uh, narrative of the far-left, the, the socialist countries saying, look at America, they're the great evil, they're supporting these far-right dictatorships and monarchies, et cetera, et cetera, um, which, which helped the, the countries on the left uh, stamp out um, any attempts at... Um, uh, Western intervention in their countries. And, and that's how it basically played out at a, at a very high level until the inevitable collapse of uh, many of these countries, most notably the Soviet Union in the late 80s, early 90s, when they economically just ran out of steam, they were morally bereft, uh, they had no uh, moral authority in their own countries, and uh, when Mikhail Gorbachev 
uh, came along and decided to try and reinvigorate their country, uh, particularly the, the Soviet Union, by creating some more freedoms, loosening up some of the controls in terms of uh, you know, what could be talked about, some, some, loosening up some of the economic controls. You know, taking his lesson, I think, in a way from Dong Xiaoping in China that had started to have a lot of success in um, reinvigorating the Chinese economy and, and also looking at some of the more uh, moderate socialist governments throughout Europe. He tried to open things up. The US uh, saw an opportunity, jumped in and uh, supported Boris Yeltsin um and you know we're able to make the whole thing fall in on itself quite rapidly which leads us to today and you know if you look at the russian and american conflicts going on today you know, a lot of that is based on uh, you know vladimir putin's <laughs> resentment against what the united states did to his country now he was he was put into power initially he was given a leg up by boris yeltsin who was being run by uh uh, you know, I think sort of a number of American strategic operatives um, who were, I think some, a lot of them were involved in the Clinton campaign, etc. cetera. Uh, so, yeah, it, it all ties in, you know, a lot of Putin's uh, angst towards the United States uh, has these sort of historical notes to it as well. And, you know, the same thing's going on today. Like we, we started our series saying, well, is the Cold War really over because we still have this mm-hmm. This battle of uh, for economic um, interests, economic supremacy between Russia, China, and the United States. Uh, big difference today versus you know the classic Cold War period is that Russia is weaker than ever, mm-hmm. um, and China is you know the soon to be, if not already, the dominant economic power. Uh, and the planet. So, uh, but the, the same thing's still going on. The same underlying drivers of um, control of foreign markets and economic supremacy uh, still playing out in all of these, uh, or the major players anyway, from the Cold War. If right. I, if I could, I, I'd love to give an example that I recently came across that supports everything that Cam just said about when, when things are bad, people are going to question everything and they're going to look for something better. Not unlike today with uh, with COVID, millions of people are dying like in a war situation. And so a lot of people are reevaluating what's important to them. So but so it's, it's kind of happening today. But I came across the story and it's a perfect example of what the Americans were fearing and why they were so radical and extreme when it came to trying to check or bring down the Soviet Union. So 1940, right after Churchill comes to power uh, as prime minister, the first thing he has to do is stop an internal debate because the people in his cabinet, some of them want to talk to Hitler to work something out. Let's not fight. We can't fight you. We're not strong enough. So anyway, so it takes a while, but Churchill wins that battle and they're going to fight. They're going to resist Nazi Germany. And as soon as that is decided, there's a rumbling among the people, not the politicians, the people. And they're like, we remembered what you told my father, my grandfather during World War I. You made a lot of promises. They went and they fought and they died and you didn't change anything. We're not doing that. We'll fight this war. We know we're going to lose hundreds of thousands of people. But if we do this, when the war's over, we want certain aspects of our economy nationalized. We want uh, universal 
universal health care. We want full employment. We want to be able to find homes and no one's allowed to go hungry. We'll fight, but you got to basically shift massively to the left. And it's a rumbling. It's just, it's 1940, 1941. It's a rumbling. Um, it finally gets to Churchill's ears and he brilliantly deflects, evades, um, obfuscates, whatever you want to call it. But he's like, yeah, hey, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll get to it. He doesn't do anything about it because he's a conservative. By the time the end of the war comes, what should have been when they have election, what should have been maybe a close run thing, uh, the conservatives and Churchill's party is annihilated. The people, the people have had enough. They want radical change. There's no point in suffering and dying if we're just going to go back to the same thing that we did before. And that's exactly what's happening in Europe and in America to a degree. And the politicians and the rich people are freaking out. And so everything can just said comes to pass. They all get together, they all organize, and they have to stomp out the story that, you know, maybe there is something better than capitalism. And so that's the fear that they had. And so the Americans got everybody uh, who was willing to go along with them, and they were going to contain the Soviet Union, and they were going to stamp this out. Um, and we'll probably get to George Kennan later, but he had some brilliant ideas. He's like, well, have a really good developed economy, take really good care of your people, and you don't have to worry about communism. The Americans were like, yeah, yeah, or we could just take on the communists. And that's what the American government's going to do for decades. Yeah, and, and I think it's also important to understand the role of um, military Keynesianism mm. um, during the Cold War. You know, one of the things that American business leaders uh, discovered during World War II was that if you can create the conditions for the government to take taxpayer money and hand it to businesses uh, with the justification of wartime emergency, yeah. it's a really easy way to make money. Fear. If you yeah. if you look at the U.S. economy, obviously uh, Great Depression in the early 30s, still struggling. Uh, in the early 40s, still not doing well, uh, took a long time to get out of the Great Depression, uh, all of a sudden they start to gear up for World War II and their, their, the military budgets start to go up. And so uh, businesses, all of a sudden they've got full employment. All of a yeah. sudden, businesses are uh, you know run off their feet, changing from producing you know uh, uh, normal industrial goods to military goods. It was a boom time for businesses in the United States during the war. War was good for business. They came out of uh, World War II. Uh, Truman you know uh, winds back the military budgets and the size of the military. Not good. Business leaders who for four or five years have been getting handouts, basically, from the government. So we don't even have time to, you know, get different bids for this contract. You, you know, here's a, here's a $50 million, go make us planes, go make us guns, go make us this, go make us that. Uh, that, uh, you know, business leaders learned from that and they realised that, you know, if we can just keep us on a permanent war footing, there's this uh, a ton of money that we can get easily from the government and it comes straight out of the taxpayers uh, that, you know, we don't have to work for, really. It, for, and there's been a lot of analysis done that we've talked about um, in our show on how many businesses, you know, when I thought about, you know, a, a military contractors, people that get money from the Pentagon, 
I assume, yeah, okay, so it's guys that make planes and tanks and guns and bullets and bombs, right, and people that uh, provide boots for soldiers. But when you drill down into it, it's actually pretty much everything from Coca-Cola to chocolate to software Playing to cards. pens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, anything that you can think of, there are military contracts involved because they've got U.S.'s I don't know, about 800 active bases around the world. All of those bases have people. All of those people need stuff. So anything that people need, there's a military contract. So what it results in is there are tens of thousands of American businesses that rely on Pentagon money every year. It might be 10% of their annual sales budget, 20%, 30%, 50%, 70%, depends on the business. But you don't want that to go away. If, you, if you're running a business, you don't want 20% of your budget to disappear, 20% of your sales to disappear next year. So these business leaders that live on Pentagon contracts obviously put pressure on their uh, local uh, politicians to make sure that that money keeps flowing. And the way that the money keeps flowing is there always needs to be uh, uh, a bad guy. There always needs to be something that's imminent. Yeah. Imminent. Yes. uh, Saddam Hussein is about to hit us with weapons of mass destruction. North Korea is about to launch missiles. Uh, Iran is about to bomb Israel. Russia is about to invade Ukraine. China is about to whatever, take over Taiwan. Like, it's just this constant uh, threat of things that are about to happen. And it's, it's, you know, just military Keynesianism. If we can keep justifying the $750 billion a year or whatever it is now that the Pentagon's budget is, um, that's easy money for all of the business leaders. So that's another big driver, I think, um, in the Cold War is looking at, where the money goes. And one of the things that we, we've talked about on the show is the Marshall Plan. Most Americans, I think, that I've spoken to, even American historians that I've spoken to over the years, still think of the Marshall Plan as this great act of charity that America did to countries in Europe to help them rebuild after World War II. Nothing could be further from the truth. It wasn't an act of charity. It was well, a, it was an act of buying the loyalty of these countries across Europe because one of the conditions of getting Marshall Plan money was they had to crush any socialist uh, movements that were happening inside of those European countries. So it was crushing the people's movements in order to get access to American money. But then European countries, if they were given a Marshall Plan grant, Marshall Plan aid, they didn't actually get most of the cash. Uh, it was basically a line of credit that they could spend with American businesses. So basically the money went from American taxpayers to the American Treasury. From the American Treasury, it went to American businesses. Never left the country. It was just a line of credit that European countries could use to order goods and services from American countries. So the money just went from the taxpayers to the businesses. And it was, what, $13 billion billion back when a billion was a lot of money, (laughs) as you like to say. Um, So, again, it was was an economic play for, uh, you know, 
very cleverly, a brilliant uh, strategy in my view. We don't need to go to war to beat the socialists in all of these countries. We'll just buy all of these countries' loyalty. Uh, And the American business leaders, uh, that's, you know, one of the reasons why America had this massive boom time. Boom in the 50s, this economic boom, was A, they were the only economic power left alive on the country after World War II, only major economy that wasn't invaded and destroyed and bombed and millions of people dead, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they were able to uh, figure out how to just this massive transfer of wealth from taxpayers to business leaders, um, which uh, created boom times. So, and when that, you know, after you've been through that, so the American business leaders had the military Keynesianism of World War II, then they had the Marshall Plan. You don't want that to go away. That's that's a lot of money that's in your forecast, your business forecasts every year. You want to figure out how to keep that going, and they've been very successful in doing that ever since with a uh, never-ending series of uh, imminent crises that uh, America needed to get involved in. Yeah, it turns out that when people are fearful, the last thing they do is think or ask questions. They just want to be safe, and so they obey. And if anything, they're thankful to the government for saving them from this latest crisis and just rinse and repeat. And the, and the, the, my favorite story, like the, the ultimate <laughs> version of that is not long after George Bush's invasion of Iraq in 2003, the U.S. started shipping pallets of cash on planes to Baghdad, just literally flying hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in cash on on pallets in the back of planes to Iraq. And then five, six, seven years later, there was this Pentagon audit. Well, what did we do with all that money? And they were like, ah, we don't know. Okay. Don't know. Yeah. Don't know where it went. Lost. Didn't have time. Yeah. Didn't have time to work out where it all went. I thought you um, had it. Did you did you get invoices? No, we didn't have time to ask for invoices. Did you get receipts? No, we didn't have time. We were, we, we, we were in a hurry. We had to we had to rebuild a country. So where did these billions of dollars go? Yeah, can't tell you. Sorry. But I I'm sure they all went to the right people. Just yeah. trust me, it was it's all very well handled, all very good. It's uh, astounding, like just like, mind mind blowing how yeah. how blatant that was. Let's just ship cash to a foreign country that we've just invaded, and then right, have it all disappear, and everyone just go, I don't know, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's it's gone. Don't worry about it. And it's the Pentagon, so they can't be punished because they're the military. They'll be fine. Yeah. Anyway, that's probably our half hour introduction up. I think, Paul. Should we shut up now? I, yeah, I mean that was that was great. Um, that I think that I, I I have a couple of sayings that I say with them that I call historical truths that you have kind of touched on unknowingly. So I feel like a pretty smart dude right now. Indoctrinating <laughs> them with for two years. So that's the best hundred dollars you ever spent getting us to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For that one, um, do you guys mind if they uh, they flood you a couple questions? Please. No, no. That's what we're here for. Anybody want to start? Seniors? <laughs> you in the mask. I got one. Can you hear and him? No, I just, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, don't worry about feeling dumb. I've worked with Ray for eight years, so I, I'm, I'm, it's fine. I'm used he's to good. it. He's, he's qualified. 
So my question um, is, um, what strategies of peacemaking um, that uh, were successful, um, successfully used during the early 20th century uh, Cold War uh, should be taken into account while trying to solve uh, the contemporary political conflicts between Western and Eastern hemispheres? Peacemaking. Yeah. Yeah, uh, good question. Well, look, I think... Um, at the end of the day, um, resolving conflicts, I mean, uh, this is what the United Nations uh, and all of our international bodies were, in theory, created to deal with, right? Um, it, it all comes down to diplomacy and diplomacy where everyone's interests are uh, acknowledged. Respected. And respected, and we try and find a path forwards where everyone's needs are met. I mean, if we if we look at the current um, brouhaha going on with Russia and the Ukraine, um, you know, the, the, they've been meeting, the diplomats have been meeting. Um, Russia has expressed their concerns, which are legitimate concerns. If you've, if you've already um, read up on the the negotiations that happened between the East and West at the end of the Cold War, one of the agreements that the West made with Gorbachev was that uh, if they ended the Soviet Union, the Cold War, um, NATO would not increase one inch, mm. would not increase its uh, uh, vicinity right. to Russia by one inch. And, of course, Ever since the early 90s, NATO has uh, continued to sign up new member states uh, mm -hmm. all around Russia, surrounding Russia with uh, missiles and armies, et cetera, et cetera, which is a genuine threat to uh, Russian security. And this is something that uh, Russia has brought up again and again and again since the early 90s, and um, this is being brought up again. And if you read any of the Western media coverage, <clears throat> about the uh, diplomacy that's going on um, around the Ukraine situation, which is in part driven by uh, Ukraine's attempts to join NATO. Um, Russia is saying, you know, they want assurances from the United States and from NATO that Ukraine won't be able to join and that they won't add any more countries in that region. And NATO and the United States have flatly said, no, that's off the table. We're not, uh, we're not agreeing to that. So there's this um, uh, complete um, uh, uh, reluctance to um, acknowledge the genuine security concerns of Russia. Um, mm. And, you know, so it's it's this issue where in order to create peace, if I have a fight with my wife, and I mean my actual wife, not Ray, who's my podcast wife, um, uh, in order, you know, she will have a point of view, I'll have a point of view. It's exactly the same thing at a household level. If, if we're going to move forwards, I need to acknowledge her, the legitimacy of her points. She needs to acknowledge the legitimacy of my points. And we need to find a, a middle ground, a way forward that we can both live with, where we both feel like we've been heard, that our concerns have been heard, and that our interests are being taken into account, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly the same thing on uh, an international level, really. Um, but 
You know, again, the United Nations was created by FDR and Churchill, but mostly by FDR, um, to uh, be the place where these sorts of issues were hashed out and resolved. Unfortunately, the United Nations was um, born deformed. Uh, can I say that? Is that a word you're allowed to say these days? I'm not sure. Um, oh, yes. Sorry, what did somebody say? We'll go with it. Okay. Somebody more woke than me, explain, uh, give me a better word. It was born, um, yeah, with, with the, the veto in the Security Council that was created because otherwise none of the countries would have joined, um, particularly the US and the UK and uh, uh, the Soviet Union wouldn't have been able to join if they didn't get a veto. The veto has meant that the Security Council has basically been you know, just, uh, I don't know, more often than not a waste of time uh, for the last 70, 80 years, uh, major flaw in the design of it. But that's where grievances should be held. But what we still find happening is um, because of the, this flaw of the veto in the Security Council, um, countries just keep making unilateral decisions. Mm. Economic sanctions, for example. Yeah. The US loves to throw around economic sanctions. Um, economic sanctions are probably illegal under international law. Um, there's some debate over it, but really, uh, any you know, international law, the United Nations Charter says that any sort of unilateral action like that, economic sanctions, is a form of economic warfare, and um, you know, economic warfare against countries that has been ratified by the United Nations and Security Council is a breach of the charter. It's probably a breach of international law, but the United States does it anyway. Yeah. They have economic, they, you know, because we can. Up the wazoo. Because you can, exactly. Yeah. Because most countries aren't in a position to argue with the United States because it's the leading economic, it has been the leading economic and military power around the world. But I don't know, it's a long, waffly answer. But I think um, diplomacy, respecting the United Nations, fixing the Security Council should be issue number one, I think, um, getting rid of the veto or at least limiting the veto to very, very, a very narrow and specific set of circumstances. Yeah. And if I could add on to that, one of the things that the Cold War has taught us was that you have to have good faith on both sides. Like Cam was saying, um, the United States did not know what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. And as you know, what we what someone does not know, they fear. Uh, Soviet counterintelligence was very good, and they were able to stop all of America's attempts to penetrate and gather information. So America's automatically assuming that the Soviet Union wants to control the world. So we ramp up and we go after and we want to contain and we buy people to be on our side. We're trying to hold them in. So now the Soviet Union sees themselves under attack. So they have to try to expand, like Cam said, to get markets and to not be contained by the Americans. So there was no sincerity on either side. So if you, if you have two sides that don't trust each other, that assume the worst of the other side and won't listen or communicate, you're not going to get anywhere. So it's all, it's about good faith and respecting, like Cameron said, or the conversation's meaningless. And if you quit talking to each other, sometimes that's when the shooting starts. And, and the respecting people's uh, interest thing, like just as a, as a subset, if you want to, you know, do some research, read 10 or 20 articles in the mainstream Western media about the Russian-Ukraine conflict going on at the moment and see how many of them mention 
the promise uh, that NATO wouldn't expand by one inch. Mm. And, and, and see how many of these articles mention uh, or give any more than, a, you know, a, a, the barest mentions of Russia's uh, security and strategic objectives and the legitimacy of those. As, as you know, we often say, imagine if, imagine if China or Russia surrounded the continental United States or North America with missiles. Yeah. Imagine if there were just large you know, missiles uh, five miles off the coast of the United States pointing at it. And in, on the border of Mexico, on the border of Canada, let's just say they were just, it was just surrounded by missiles. I mean, if you've read about the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the one time, <laughs> one time. We freaked out. You know, to, to try and stop the U.S. from invading Cuba again, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Castro asked the Soviets to give him some missiles that they could point the United States God. as a deterrent. United States lost their damn minds. It nearly turned into World War III yeah. over one set of missiles in Cuba pointing at the United States. Imagine if it was surrounded by missiles just off its border, not a continent away where you might be able to shoot them out of the sky if they get launched, but right off your border. That's what Russia's been living with. Yeah. Um, and yet it, it's, you know, it doesn't even get talked about in the mainstream media coverage of the issue. Russia's interests just don't, they're, because they're the bad guys, there's still this propaganda, Cold War, McCarthyist leftover that, well, they're the bad guys, therefore we should not um, even give their concerns or interests even remote legitimacy in our coverage because if we did it would disturb the fabric of society absolutely next thanks i I think we got time for one more go for it hi can you hear me yep we can sir yes okay um so uh i agree with you guys that the marshall plan was not charity but I wanted to know what other resources Europe could have used to restructure itself after a war because all countries were basically like without any money. So what could they have done to like restructure themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not saying that the Marshall Plan um, had no, uh, delivered no benefits to Europe, but <laughs> if the US wanted to make a charity, they could have literally made a charity, no strings attached. Here's the $13 billion, spend it as you see fit. Right. Um, you know, rebuild your countries. Um, God bless. Uh, go in peace. Um, you know, they could have done that. Could have been literal aid, literal just charity Here. if they wanted to help those countries. You're right in that you know, there really weren't any other options to get money. I mean, the Soviets would have tried to uh, spread the money around and rebuild these countries. They would have had strings attached to it as well, don't get me wrong. Um, But, uh, you know, the the United States was in a far better position to do that than any country on earth. But it could have just been straight up aid and charity. It didn't have to come with all of the strings attached, which was, you know, you, you only get it if you crush any socialist movement in your country and you uh, spend I think 90% of it they had to spend on American goods and services. There was a little bit of wiggle room in some instances. By the way, a lot of the money that was shipped to these countries as part of the Marshall Plan ended up going into um, CIA black ops uh, in the early stages too because the CIA didn't have any um, budget. 
congressional budget approval for uh, overthrowing countries. Yeah. Um, but that's what they wanted to do. If you read up on the Italian elections in the uh, 40s, in 1948, 47, 48, I think the first one was, uh, the CIA was running around spending money hand over fist uh, illegally and secretly to um, make sure that the Christian right uh, party in uh, Italy won the election uh, versus the, the socialists that had a lot of on-the-ground yeah. support, socialist party there. They did that uh, in Italy. Uh, they used uh, slush funds to overthrow the president of Iran in the 50s, Mossadegh. They were, they were using Marshall Plan money in a lot of cases as a slush fund, a secret slush fund that couldn't be traced because they didn't have any money to do that right. kind of stuff themselves. But, yeah, it, it could have just been straight-up charity um, if you really wanted to help the people and give them – you know, there, this great thing, there was this document signed by Churchill and Roosevelt, uh, much to Churchill's disgust in 1941, the Atlantic China. Charter, yeah. um, which basically guaranteed the um, – freedom of all peoples around the world to choose their own uh, form of government, their own path for self-determination of all peoples. Right. Really, when you read the fine print, uh, it meant um, white people, um, white English-speaking people that we like right. because, uh, you know, when uh, Ho Chi Minh went to the Americans and said, hey, can we have our independence? They were like, no, shut up, <laughs> France owns you, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there were limitations on it which weren't actually talked about. But if, if they genuinely believed in the self-determination of all peoples, they could have just given the European countries the money and said, yeah. you determine, self-determine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it won't make you go blind. If I can give a slightly more pro-American uh, answer to that. Um, That's what it is. <laughs> there we go. No, Cam's absolutely right. But America did not do anything that any other past superpower we had everybody everybody was on their knees america's still the only one standing we took advantage of that yeah here's some money we want you to rebuild because we need your markets but we need you to do what we say when we say it vote the way we tell you to do and basically just have a system just like ours and the dollar and gold i guess have to be the, at the center of everybody's universe so we just did what everybody else did um i will say that the marshall plan was a magnificent political gesture that Europe felt that they needed that said that basically America was saying, if, if those Soviet troops come storming across the uh, Polish border, we're here for you. We're here for you militarily and we're here for you financially. So in some ways it made um, Europe feel better. But when you look at some of the stats now, what the Marshall Plan did was speed up a recovery that was already happening. Did it help? Absolutely. But it was mostly the it was the it had the full backing of America. We're letting you know that we're here for you. So that made a lot of Europeans feel good. But you're right. America benefited from the Marshall Plan more than anybody else, which is an incredibly ironic statement to make. Awesome. We actually have one more, which I'm, I'm pretty sure will be the last one. Sure. Get it. OK, so. Uh... In the IB, uh, we talk a lot about the uh, political and economical and the ideological causes and um, reasons for the Cold War. But with all of the talk about the propaganda on the United States front and the um, and the involvement of the conservative parties or the conservative political parties, uh, to what extent did those 
like the, those people have on the prolongation or the severity of the Cold War? Good question. That's good. Um, first of all, a lot. Um, like Ham was saying, the American politicians figured out very quickly, at least the Republicans, the conservatives, whatever you want to call it, they figured out that any kind of perceived weakness on Truman's part, they could bash him over the head with it politically and in the polls. And indeed, they do retake Congress while he's still president. So um, America is a lot like the Titanic. We're heading for an iceberg. There's a lot of bad things happening, but the people who are in charge don't care. They just want to be the ones sitting in the captain's chair. So uh, so they were able to just go back and forth and hurt each other. And so the conservatives never hesitated to bash Truman in the press um, because at the time, Yalta was a big, big deal. It was a big success. As time went on, it, it looks a lot less rosy to people. Um, what it comes down to is that FDR, a brilliant politician, which which is not the same thing as a good man. Um, we needed him to live about another 10 or 15 years. He had a really decent relationship with Stalin and he accepted Stalin as he was. He says, I can push him so far and I can't push him anymore. And that's what it's like to deal with Stalin. Whereas Truman was trying to come across as a tough guy and tried to step into FDR's um, shoes. And so probably went too far with it, but the, the conservatives never hesitated to beat Truman over the head if they saw a perceived weakness on his part. And remember, everybody in America believes deeply that socialism and communism is bad, is evil. So all they've got to do is say something, and suddenly Truman looks weak. Yeah, there was this, uh, and you see this play out in the um, political campaigns uh, in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then it, it doesn't stop after that, obviously. But um, this whole thing on Truman is soft on communism or soft and then it becomes soft on this, soft on that, soft on crime, soft on drugs, anything yeah. that you want to beat somebody over the head with, they're soft on. Right. And, uh, you know, rather than provide a counter narrative to that, which was probably a losing proposition, Truman just, uh, as Ray said, tried to be uh, come across as a tough guy. And, and quite honestly, Truman wasn't it wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. He wasn't he wasn't the smartest guy. Um, FDR had no time for him. Didn't like him. Didn't want him as his vice president. He was forced by uh, the Democratic Party strategists to accept Truman as his VP candidate. Um, it was a, one of the great tragedies of history that FDR died when Truman was the vice president. Um, and you know. Certainly, the people living in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, must have felt that, because you know, highly unlikely that those countries would have been, those cities would have been bombed if um, Truman hadn't been president. If there was somebody else sitting in uh, the White House um, in August 1945. Um, so yeah, but he he felt like to save his own political career, he needed to look and act and sound. Tough. He needed to double down mm. on uh, the war of words and the military buildup against the Soviets, and it's just it just sent America down this path that it still hasn't uh, recovered from. Yes, it's determined the last eighty years of American politics to a large extent. It's going to be to tough. the point now where the major parties there, like in most of the Western world, you have the the, the conservative parties that are probably centre-right, or uh, in some cases probably take the Republicans far-right now, 
particularly under Trump's uh, leadership. And then you have the left parties, Democrats over there, the Labor Party in Australia and the United Kingdom, that are, are more um, centre-right parties. They're not even, you know, left parties anymore. Shift um, Yeah. I mean, the, the Democrats in the US is even further to the right than the Labor Party is in Australia, but the Labor Party in Australia is a centre-right party, according to most uh, political analysts. So we don't even have major parties on the left anymore yeah. in the West after 80 years of this uh, tough on communism, tough on socialism, yeah. uh, propaganda that's leaked into all of us through film, television, books, and the education system. Yeah. The education, you know, I can't speak about IB, but the education system around the Western world has uh, been co-opted by the capitalist um, elite as well, because you know they they oh well we're going to um, we're going to provide some funding. If you're going to support politicians who are in control of the education system, you're going to get them to try and make sure the education system education system toes a certain line. If you're funding universities, and this is a big thing, particularly in the United States, less so here, but if you're providing sponsorship or funding to the universities, you want to make sure that the universities aren't uh, teaching kids about the values of communism. And there's, there's a whole bunch of work that's been done on this. I, I published a book a couple of years ago called The Psychopath Epidemic, and I had a whole chapter talking about uh, how the uh, capitalist powers in the United States have been trying to remove any positive uh, um, um, coverage of socialism or communism as political theories in uh, American universities over the last 40, 50 years. So it's, it's, a, it's leaked into every aspect of society and then it's very, very, very hard to pull ourselves out of it. And destructive. You know, it's, it's very hard to be um, aware of the cognitive, your own cognitive biases when you're talking about these issues, <clears throat> whether they're left or right, by the way, and uh, provide a balanced view. And then also just when you're reading all of the material, and again, I don't know what your um, textbooks are like, but, uh, you know, I pick up books, major books published by major American historians uh, that have, you know, universal five-star reviews and New York Times bestsellers on the Cold War. And I'll get a chapter in them and I'll be like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? This is the most biased pro-Western nonsense. It's, it's just appalling that these books are getting – and I'm talking about books published in the last 10 years. Yeah. Just appalling stuff and yet – this is the stuff that continues to be churned out there. It's try and find a book about the Marshall Plan that explains it as a you know a, a wealth transfer from American workers to the uh, business leaders. It's inordinately difficult. We did we did a whole series on the Marshall Plan. It took me forever to find the information that I needed because even the major books coming out, we had a we had a guy on it. Um, a major historian who wrote a major book a couple of years ago on the Marshall Plan barely mentioned the wealth transfer aspect of it or the conditions that were placed on the European countries. The two most important aspects of the Marshall Plan, I think, 
for history, yeah. uh, students of history to understand, got barely a mention in this 750-page uh, book on the Marshall Plan. It's astounding. Well, guys, thank you so much. That was so helpful. Uh, I think you gave this, these guys a different perspective. Uh, you gave them another voice that kind of echoes some things but also takes a different turn on other things. So uh, thank you so much. I'm sure that they, they thank you as well. Um, I'll, uh, I'll shoot you guys an email to wrap everything up, but uh, huge fans and, and thanks for everything. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take Pleasure care. to talk to you all. Take care.